and welcome to Doing Disasters Differently, the podcast with Renee Hanvin, which is all about inspiring you to start thinking and doing disasters a little bit differently too. In this episode, I'm talking with Brooks Nelson, and he's the Senior Director of Global Resilience at the US Chamber of Commerce Foundation. And we're talking about leading America's private sector to make a difference. So a little bit about Brooks. So Brooks manages the US Chamber of Commerce Foundation's Corporate Citizenship Center's Community Resilience and Disaster Response Program. In this position, Brooks leads programming around the private sector's role in the life cycle of disasters. He coordinates the center's response to natural and man-made disasters through the corporate aid tracker, business delegation trips, and coordination calls. In addition to leading the Global Resilience Program, Brooks focuses on the impacts of disaster to small and medium-sized businesses and training business leaders on business continuity through tools like Resilience in a Box. Brooks began working with the Corporate Citizenship Centre in March 2009 as a researcher for the Together for Recovery campaign. Previously, Brooks was the Senior Manager for Operations at the Centre, where he was responsible for the day-to-day management of the Centre as well as directing event logistics. He has also served as coordinator for the Business and Society Relations Program, where he was the lead for the 10th anniversary of 9-11. For this significant anniversary, the centre helped mobilise and track over 911 projects completed by businesses and chambers across the country. Prior to joining the centre, Brooks was with the USA Freedom Corps, the Civil Engagement Office of the White House under the Bush administration. So I always like to start with where we met and I connected with Brooks a few years ago when I was planning the business model for corporate to community. I was following the approaches that Brooks was leading during the many, many hurricane seasons over in the States across the years. And I was really impressed by what he and his team were doing to enable and support greater contribution by the private sector. Our first conversation started probably about two years ago, and I've been a big follower of the annual Building Resilience through Private Public Partnerships Conference that he hosts each year. In fact, this year, I was planning on traveling to be there in person, which obviously was halted by COVID-19. Yet Brooks invited me to participate in one of the virtual sessions alongside Jennifer Gray Thompson, who I spoke to a few episodes ago, and it was great to be able to talk about the Australian focus and approaches in the space. I'm hoping the world will be in a better place next year. Brooks, thanks so much for joining me. It's always great to chat with you. Thank you, Renee. I am excited to be here and yes, was was disappointed that you couldn't make the trip uh, this year and disappointed that we couldn't have the event in person and see everyone, um, but it was still great to host it virtually and we were able to increase attendance and see more uh, attendance globally, including yourself. So thank you for participating and thank you for this opportunity to talk today. So Brooks, can you please explain what is the US Chamber of Commerce Foundation and what is your role? Absolutely. Uh, So let me take one step back and share. So the US Chamber of Commerce um, is the largest uh, business lobbying organization here in the US. Um, We have about 2 million members um, making up small and medium sized businesses and also large corporations. Uh, As part of the U.S. Chamber, there is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, uh, which is the nonprofit arm uh, which I sit in. And we're dedicated to strengthening America's long-term competitiveness, 
we educate the public on the conditions that are necessary for businesses and communities to thrive, and also look at creative solutions uh, that businesses provide to positively shape the future. Uh, and so in my role within the foundation, I lead the Community Resilience and Disaster Response Program, where we focus on how the private sector engages in the life cycle of a disaster. So from investing in preparedness and mitigation initiatives to the immediate response and long-term recovery, uh, we see businesses as a force for good, and we believe that that is especially evident during times of disaster. And then additionally, I focus on the impacts of disaster on small and medium enterprises, or SMEs, and how we can help train them on business continuity planning and preparing them for any impact uh, of future disaster. Now, Brooks, we could pretty much just stop talking there. That's exactly what I'm aiming and have been doing in Australia. So it has been so great to connect with you because I absolutely see what you're doing to me is a you know global best practice. And I didn't realize you had 2 million members, so I might have to up my game a little bit. Now, are you focused on all hazards disasters, so the likes of cyber, et cetera, or is it only natural hazards? So you're, you call them wildfires, we call them bushfires and floods and hurricanes. Yeah, so we will respond to all hazards. Uh, most of our work has revolved around natural disasters, uh, though we have responded to several complex crises, uh, like civil unrest here in the United States, as well as the Syrian and Venezuela conflicts. Um, we do have another department in the broader chamber, which I referenced earlier, who focuses specifically on cybersecurity and national security. Uh, so we do collaborate closely with them on that particularly, particular issue. But obviously, data security and cybersecurity is critical for business continuity. So we, we do highlight that issue when we are training small businesses um, and helping them thinking about protecting uh, their data assets. Can I ask you, so I am obviously a big fan of the private sector and the contribution they can make. So can I ask you, what role does the private sector play in supporting America to prepare, respond and recover from disasters? So as I mentioned earlier, we see business as a force for good and they provide, provide the solutions, the challenges that face society. And so the private sector plays an integral role in all cycles of disaster. Um, and we've seen an evolution across the corporate responsibility globally and in America in how companies engage in social, social issues. So our program uh, within the foundation was founded in the early 2000s uh, when CSR was still heavily corporate philanthropy, uh, which I would argue is still critical. Um, but companies were mostly engaging with just cash and wanted to have a better understanding of where their donations were needed after disaster. As time has gone on, companies continue to provide those donations to communities, um, but also in kind goods and services. Um, and this support has been critical for those NGOs who are on the ground responding. Now in the most recent evolution in CSR and social impact as many have adopted, we have seen how companies think about investing in the full disaster life cycle. So companies are investing in preparedness and mitigation to support communities before disaster strikes. So these examples can include supporting fortified housing uh, in very high risk zones or building technologies uh, that help map vulnerable populations ahead of a disaster 
so that first responders know where supplies, supplies are needed um, and can position them in advance. Um, or investing in actually preparing SMEs uh, to think about business continuity planning and fortifying their business uh, before the next disaster. Additionally, I would say we're, we're seeing companies be more strategic with their philanthropic giving. And they make total dollar commitments as soon as this disaster strikes, but actually holding 50% of that funding until the community has begun their long-term recovery phase. This is often when the funding is most needed, um, but there are also the greatest gaps in resources. Uh, and so definitely see this as the best practice um, for companies who are investing uh, in disaster response. The disaster giving space is such an interesting area here. And we obviously had what people are saying is unprecedented bushfires. We had obviously mm -hmm. very large bushfires at the start of the year and the giving was phenomenal. But the actually, if you analyzed it, and in fact, we have a project, we're actually about to start doing this. When you analyze the effects of the gooding, uh, sorry, the effects of the giving in the sense of what was helpful giving and what was harmful giving and what was giving that's kind of still sort of sitting in a, in a myth, like a mythological place somewhere because no one seems to have got the funding. Yeah. <laughs> there's a massive need to educate corporates on great giving. And for me, that's very much around, you know, it has to be needs led as opposed to the token is broken kind of, I'm going to give this way because it gives me a press release and, you know, it, it, it looks good on our kind of marketing um, plan. And I think I love the concept of the full life cycle of disasters. And I think that's an area that in Australia, you know, we do have a bit of a she'll be right kind of laid back attitude, I'll be honest. So preparedness and planning and mitigation is probably not part of the typical Australian culture, but definitely an area that we need to move into and progress into, into that preparedness. And I kind of like to, you know, I think that resilience really is like recovery is resilience and preparedness. Cause as you're mm -hmm. recovering, you're also building that resilience and I guess expanding that resilience, but you, you know, you need to be preparing for what's coming next because we know that there'll be more. Brooks, can I ask you, how effective are private-public collaborations in America? So given you run an annual conference about the topic, which again, I've been following for a number of years, how are the partnerships evolving and strengthening? Yeah, I would, you know, in America, they're the way we manage the disaster life cycle. Um, the, the former administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency here in America, Brock Long, describes private-public partnerships like a three-legged stool. One leg is the government, another in the nonprofit sector, and the third, the private sector. And all three legs are critical to hold up the community during a disaster, um, and each brings their own mandates and values. Um, and I think, especially during this time of COVID and everything that is going on globally, it's become becoming increasingly realized that no industry or sector can do it alone and we're all stronger together. I think, especially during times of disaster, these partnerships are strengthened by the speed and efficiency that information and trust is shared. And I think that these partnerships have evolved and started to become really strategic in how they operate. Um, so a couple examples I'd love to give. You know, during COVID-19, we have seen almost all of our restaurants um, have to temporarily close or um, have reduced services in some ways. Um, and many workers have been furloughed. Um, but also at the same time, we begin to see a spike in hunger and food shortages. Uh, and so one of the responses, Operation Barbecue, who is a nonprofit um, based here in the US, 
teamed up with local restaurant owners, um, the Department of Health and Human Services at the state level, and then also corporate food industry companies. Um, and through that private-public partnership, they were able to serve 4.5 million meals in 45 days, and they saved nearly 300 restaurant workers from having to file for unemployment. Wow, that's a great example. And I have to say, you got me as soon as you said Operation Barbecue, because that would go down <laughs> very well here. But isn't that just a fantastic outcome from just, you know, relationships and understanding who can play what role and then coming together and just, you know, delivering it? The outcome is fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of so simple. It's almost like, you know, why in, I mean, again, I talk from Australia, um, you're obviously way further ahead than we are, but like, why has it taken so long for this to happen? I think I read recently that the, I think the American business round table, I think they're called recently changed their mantra or their code to say that it would be stakeholders before shareholders, which I think, yeah. you know, to me is like fantastic. And I know that our equivalent decided not to do that. But I think, you know, that's a great example as to how by taking a different mindset, being a CEO or board of a big corporate business in terms of how you can contribute and support those who give you social license to operate, being your employees, mm -hmm. your customers, your communities, that the, you know, the outcomes can be profitable, plus also, you know, give you such great brand equity, but also make such a difference in the, you know, the world that you operate in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And disappointing to hear that your uh, constituents there decided not to, to adopt. Um, I think, you know, we are continuing to see that trend uh, move in the United States. And I, I would argue that it will probably go global. Um, and I think, you know, that kind of stakeholder over shareholder is something that we had started to, we had been, we've been seeing um, long before the business roundtable came came out with that mantra, but it's great to see the companies sign that pledge and it will be interesting to see the results moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Well, I might, I might try and make that my mission in Australia too. Gosh, I need to, <laughs> I need to almost, I need to almost stop talking to you because you can give me a list. My to-do list is going to be too long. Now I spoke to Craig Fugate um, a few episodes ago and I always refer to the Waffle House and Walmart as I guess, my American versions and examples of best practice in terms of how corporates can identify how they can support communities in disasters, either talking about those two, or do you have a couple of other corporate examples that you can share that make a great contribution? Absolutely. You know, I think what I would, would say about the, the Waffle House Index, it's a testament to two things. First, how important it is to the company that they include preparedness and business continuity planning into their operations. Um, when we see that Waffle House either partially open, fully open, or not open, it's a testament to how impacted that community is, which leads to the second point of what we talked about earlier, that the sooner a business can reopen, the sooner the community can reopen and recover. And these local businesses are the backbone of the community and having them open provides hope for the communities that are impacted. And I think, you know, Walmart, obviously their footprint is global, which requires them to be an expert in disaster management. 
and also the nature of their company with consumer goods provide critical um, throughout the life cycle of disaster. But, you know, I think that the list of com- American-based companies who are active in this disaster response are real experts. Um, I, I could go on and on, but ones that I think are really important to look at and partner with, um, you have UPS, FedEx, and Amazon, who are all critical partners, um, both domestically and globally, through their logistics and supply chain networks, uh, which help move life-saving items during critical times, um, but also each invest millions of dollars annually uh, in communities to not only help them recover, but also prepare. I would also say, you know, there's companies like a Medtronic or GSK who may not seem as obvious to have as disaster response partners, Um, or have disaster management as one of their pillars. But from a pharmaceutical and medical device perspective, they're creating these life-saving products. And if those products are not available for those impacted by a disaster, then it becomes a double disaster. And there can be more casualties due to the negative health impacts um, that that disaster creates. So investing in the preparedness measures is, is critical to their business. And then finally, I would say, I could go on and on with a number of companies, but the last example I'll give is just the number of financial service companies who are very engaged in supporting these vulnerable communities. You know, studies in the U.S. have shown that 40% of our population do not have more than $400 in savings to cover a disaster or an emergency. So for companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Prudential, this can have a significant impact on their consumer. So by providing education and the resources to help their constituents prepare makes them stronger for the next disaster. Some great examples there. And thank you. I love that you shared across multiple industry groups as well, because I think it's quite easy to go to the retail sector quite quickly, because obviously that does have, you know, usually a big footprint um, and whatnot. But it's, yeah, great examples to share from other sectors as well. Now, I'm going to ask you, so I see so many examples here, so you're going to have to keep yourself to one or two as well. Okay. What's been the most, and it's kind of a weird question because in the, you know, in the space that we work in, it's disasters and you would not wish a disaster on anyone. But I always say that great things can come from the process of disasters and obviously in every disaster come opportunities. So what are the most, what's one or two of the most exciting outcomes or achievements that your team and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation has delivered since you've been there? So, you know, I think one of the things that I am most proud of is how we are focusing on helping small and mid-sized businesses prepare. Um, And so I referenced our Resilience in a Box toolkit uh, that we created in partnership with the UPS Foundation. And it walks businesses through assessing risks and all hazards, um, but also building upon kind of their six core business units, whether it's their people or their data, their buildings, um, their suppliers, etc. And so through partnerships, um, both domestically and then globally, um, we've been able to push this product out, which is now available in English, Spanish, French, Turkish, and Arabic. And through partnerships in Turkey and Mexico, we've actually trained over 100,000 businesses on this, using this tool. And then through uh, here in the US, through our state and local chamber network, um, we have about 
1,500 state and local chamber partners that we work with to push out the, the tooling. Um, I do a number of workshops with them. And just helping these small and mid-sized businesses think about continuity planning has been really an exciting achievement since taking over this role. Um, the other example I'll give is the conference that you referenced. Uh, you know, I think one of the powers of the Chamber Foundation is being a convener. And having taken over this conference in 2018, we've seen growth from 400 attendees to this year we had nearly 2,500 um, registrants for the comp for the three-day conference. And so it's exciting to be able to see the depth and the growth um, and the partnerships that we've been able to build through this annual event. I think the event is fantastic. And again, it's something that I'm really um, hoping to and aiming to replicate. So maybe we'll do it in reverse. Maybe you can come here first um, <laughs> and present it our first <laughs> inaugural one. And then um, I'll come to your next one, obviously, if we're allowed to leave our homes, given we're both pretty much in curfews at the moment. Now, my final question is always the same. So, and this can be anything at all. What would be the two things you'd like to be done differently in the disaster space? You know, I think that we are very good at operating in silos uh, within disaster management. And one of the focus areas that we've been thinking about is how do we really look at community resiliency? And being, I think too often you go into community and the emergency manager has never spoken to the Chamber of Commerce. And the Chamber of Commerce speaks with the mayor, but may not know, you know, some of the nonprofits who are really active in disaster management. Um, and we have communities, uh, vulnerable communities, who are completely left out of the equation. And so I think when we think about what resiliency looks like and what it means, we need to really take that whole community approach and tear down those silos so that these different communities or stakeholders within the community um, are collaborating and working together to make their community more resilient um, and able to, to bounce back. Um, and so I think, you know, that is definitely one. And out of that, I think something that, you know, has been a focus recently uh, in America is, is this issue of equity. Uh, and equity definitely falls under the disaster space as well. And so as we're thinking about the life cycle of disaster, um, are we also thinking about how equity plays into that and we really are serving the whole community? Sounds like there's almost a disaster with a few sirens in the background happening over there. I know, I <laughs> good, good timing. Thanks for putting that on for the podcast conversation. Brooks, not surprisingly, that is like music to my ears. And I think, you know, the, the biggest gap that I've always talked about is the siloed mindset and the fact that we all come to the table with our own focus and our own stakeholder hats. And we're doing a, um, a bit with Daniel Aldrich, who's obviously US-based and mm -hmm. his yeah. area of social capital. And I'm great. Yeah, really excited. He's on um, our Resilient Australia Alliance Advisory Committee, and we're really excited to be working with him to activate some initiatives about exactly that, building connections in communities because people are the foundation of resilience. The equity side as well, because I think there are so many vulnerable groups that are not at the table and not invited to 
um, you know, the preparedness and, and we need them to be. And in fact, you know, they need to be there probably before most other people. So that's absolutely an area that I think is really important too. And in fact, we had an example of that recently where um, I'm in Victoria and we have our second COVID wave of lockdowns and it started in, in some housing commissions and the housing commissions are particularly uh, multicultural backgrounds and, you know, getting, you know, types of food that they needed in was just almost impossible because there'd been no consideration to that might be a requirement should something happen in a, you know, in a lockdown kind of situation. So really simple things that I think if, again, if multiple stakeholders are at that table early when we can mm -hmm. think about it and plan and have inclusive stakeholder mapping and inclusive planning, then obviously the outcomes will be so, so much different and better for all. Brooks, thank you so much for your time. So in this episode, I'm talking with Brooks Nelson, and he's the Senior Director of Global Resilience at the US Chamber of Commerce Foundation. And we've been talking about leading America's private sector to make a difference. Brooks, thanks so much for your time. And I honestly can't wait till we chat again. It could be tomorrow. I might ring you again tomorrow. <laughs> thank you. No, I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. That's the end of this episode of Doing Disasters Differently, the podcast, which I hope you found to be relevant, informative and inspiring. If you're interested in participating in the conversation or to connect with me personally, please visit corporate2community.com. Until the next episode, stay safe and remember we all have a role to play in thinking differently and doing differently before, during and after disasters.